I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. You know, folks, there comes a time when we all have to start growing bolder, and Bill and I believe that time is now. Growing Boulder is about the possibilities of life. And we want you to go there with us, and this show is proof that there is far more out there for you than you can even imagine. And proof is in the examples of ordinary people living extraordinary lives. In fact, today you're going to meet a man who reinvented himself at the age of 40. Now he's in his 50s and is an internationally acclaimed architect. We'll also hear from Barbara Hannah Grufferman, the author of an incredible book called The Best of Everything After 50. Plus, one of the world's top palliative care physicians who is on a quest to transform end-of-life care and options, and we're going to have a man who sold everything, literally his entire life, on eBay. She is an Olympic gold medalist four times over and the greatest female distance swimmer ever. (laughs) She set six American records, three world records. She has won 45 national title. She's also, folks, been retired from swimming for 15 years, and she's even a mother of two these days. Apparently, though, Bill, her competitive spirit is not retired because she is attempting an Olympic comeback at the age of 40, which is something unheard of for a distance swimmer. Let's welcome the Energizer Bunny, Miss Janet Evans. Hey, Janet, how are you? Hi, guys. How are you doing? We're we're doing fabulous. And Janet, before we talk about your motivation for this incredible challenge, I want to make certain that everybody understands just how good you were and perhaps still are because you held the world record in the 400-meter free, the 800-meter free, and the 1,500-meter free for nearly 20 years, the oldest records on the book. And is it true that you still hold the American record in the 800 free? I do. I do still hold the American record in the 800 free. The world record in that was broken in Beijing in 2008, but... Somehow that American record is, has, has hung on all these years. You know, it's incredible. I mean, she put it out of sight 20 years ago. It just doesn't happen uh, at that level. So congratulations for that. Let's talk about your comeback. It, it has been an incredible success already to the extent that you made cutoff times for next week's Olympic trials. How much faster will you have to go to make the team and actually swim in London? Well, I'm going to have to drop some time in my 800 freestyle to, to actually make the team. So, um, you know, training's going well. Um, it's the question for me of, of cardiovascularly, um, you know, getting through an entire 800 at the age of 40. So, you know, my times have been good, though. I, um, you know, when I qualified for the Olympic trials, I only swam about 11 seconds slower than I did at the 96 Olympics in Atlanta when I was 24. So wow. that in and of itself is something I'm, I'm pretty proud of, um, the fact that I could come back and my body could do this and my body could hold up through the uh, 10 miles of training every day and, uh, you know, raising my two children and, and supporting my family along the way. So it's, it's been a very incredible journey. You know, when people hear about it, their first thought is, wait a minute, that cannot be possible. But there is precedent for it. Dara Torres made the team at 41 the last time around. But, you know, when you look at that closely, Dara's a sprinter. And in no way does that diminish her amazing success. But if you are going to make a comeback in your 40s, (laughs) sprinting has got to be the way to do it, not distance events. (laughs) I know it's a little crazy, but I can't sprint. Trust me, if I could sprint, I would sprint. <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a very good sprinter. Um, so for me, it was either distance swimming or nothing, and, and that's really all I know. So we do log a few more hours in the pool every day than those sprinters do, um, you know, which, which certainly doesn't, you know, make it any easier to be a sprinter. They have difficult training in their own right, mostly a lot of, of dry land work. So, um you know, all I know is how to swim distance. So for me, it's been a nice balance of, of getting in the pool, working hard, balancing family life, taking good care of my body, being fit, um, eating well, getting a lot of sleep. So all the things that come with being an athlete, but also trying to be home and, and be a good mom as well. And, you know, Jana, forget the fact that, that some of your competitors remember what you did. Many of them weren't even born when you, <laughs> when you did what you did. Do they give you uh, the, the respect due? Do they understand that they're, that they're teeing off against the Babe Ruth of distance swimming? <laughs> 
Um, well, you know, I, I'd like to think so, but but at the end of the day, you know, most of them weren't born when I was winning my gold medals, so they probably only know my name from, you know, I guess maybe the record books or from the stories they, they've heard or the, the hard workouts that their coaches have told them about that I used to do or still do. So, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that, that uh, wisdom and, and age gives me a little experience and uh, a little bit of an edge on the mental front because I have been to three Olympic trials and three Olympic games, so hopefully that helps a little bit. Janet, we have had musicians on this program who walked away from their craft when they were at their peak or in their 20s or 30s and came back. We've talked to track stars, athletes who walked away and came back. We've talked to a unicyclist who put it away at the age of 10 and came back at the age of 50. What is it, Janet? What is it about the comeback that pulls people back to what it is they used to do? And and what is it like to be able to try that? Well, you know, I, I think that it's in our souls. You know, it's, it's a part of who we are. And, and even though I escaped it for a long time and, and had my family and and kind of moved on with my life, if you will. Swimming was still a part of my soul and something that, that made me um, or makes me um, feel very complete and very happy. So um, for me, I think it was more a question of just uh, finding my, my joy and finding um, personally what, what, what is good for me. You know, I adore being a mother. I think it's the greatest job in the world. Um, that is obviously, my family is obviously my priority. Um, but I think many moms sometimes, um, feel like they've put a little bit of their dreams and aspirations on the back burner for their family. And, and I was fortunate enough in that my husband has been very supportive in helping me find the time to make this happen. And, um, you know, my kids are still my priority, but I, I think that it's in our souls, and, and we, uh, we can never leave really what we love. I really, I really believe that, and that's why I think you see so many comebacks. We are speaking with Janet Evans, the greatest female distance swimmer of all time, who at 40 years of age and the mother of two is uh, making an incredible comeback so far, trying to swim her way uh, to London later this summer. Uh, you, you mentioned your family, Janet. Your oldest daughter, uh, Sydney, I wonder where you got that name, uh, <laughs> is, is what, six? Does she have any idea who you are other than mother, and, and does she understand what you're trying to do? Um, you know, she does a little bit. We, we don't talk about it a lot, but a lot of um, kids at her school and parents and teachers have told her, so I think she's coming to that realization. Um, she asks me every day I come home from practice how swimming was, mm-hmm. as is my two-year-old, although I'm not sure he, he understands it quite as well. And, um, you know, I think the funniest thing about Sid is that when I ask her if she wants to join the swim team. She says she doesn't because she doesn't want to have to get up early like I do to go swimming. <laughs> so I'm not sure uh, my husband and I have two little swimmers on our hands, but um, they certainly have been supportive and, and encouraging. And, you know, I think um, one of the greatest things about this has been, you know, to set an example for them, um, also to set an example of taking care of my body and my health. And our whole family has begun eating better, and I feed everyone better because, I, to be honest, I need the nutrients. To, uh, to go to swim practice and do well, and it's kind of parlayed into just an uh, overall healthier lifestyle for my family. You've also fed yourself you know, mentally, too. You're a person that obviously likes to focus on a challenge and a goal and excel at it. You've done that as a parent. You're trying to do that now as well as an author and a commercial spokesman. And I've heard you speak before. You're an incredible motivational speaker. Talk about experiencing all these different areas you know, to try to become a champion at life. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I think, you know, someone earlier today asked me where my medals were, and it's kind of like, oh, I don't really look at my medals, because I think, you know, the greatest part about being an Olympian is having a platform to inspire others. Um, and, you know, whether I make the team or not, I hope I've inspired um, everyone, but especially moms and, and women that are my age, to, to do what they, they want to do, to dream that they can do and be anything they want to be, and um, also to take better care of themselves. You know, I've been fortunate enough uh, recently to partner with Metamucil to educate Americans, especially women, about heart disease. I have heart disease in my family. Eight million women in this country suffer from heart disease. So um, I've, I've added Metamucil to my diet to help lower my cholesterol. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's helped me feel fit and feel better and feel good in the pool. And hopefully it can inspire other women to do the same. See, Bill, you had to go and mention she was a commercial spokesperson because then she does and becomes one. But, you know, she's a champion at it, though. I mean, it, it makes sense. It she, really makes sense. She is great. You, you know, Janet, before we let you go, uh, your last big meet, uh, 
prior to this uh, other than the Masters swimming meet where you set a couple of world records. And uh, as a Masters swimmer myself, I love Masters swimming, and I can't wait for you to get into it full time. But your last really big meet, 96 in Atlanta, you didn't win a medal there, uh, but you did contribute a major highlight because you were the one that carried the torch through the Olympic Stadium and handed it to Muhammad Ali, who lit the cauldron. That had to be a moment of a lifetime for you. Um, hands down, the greatest moment of my swimming career, my athletic career. Wow. I um, always tell people I'd give up every medal to live that moment again. It was, you know, really transcended the sport of swimming, definitely, and, and even the Olympic movement for me. Um, just to, to be the final woman to carry that torch and then obviously to pass it off to Muhammad Ali, which um, spoke volumes about what a champion he is. Um, it was uh, very surreal. It, it still sometimes... Um, doesn't feel like it happened, but um, very, very indescribable moment in my career and, and hands down the greatest moment for me. Janet, uh, you, you are a true national treasure. We've enjoyed watching all of your accomplishments in the past. We look forward to the Olympic trials uh, coming up in just a few days, and, and we will be pulling for you not only then, but hopefully you'll make it to London. And, you know, good luck with all that you're doing. Uh, God bless you and your family, and, and we look forward to cheering for you coming up soon. Thank you, Mark and Bill. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, Janet Evans. And if you want to learn more about her, you can go to JanetEvans.com. Coming up, taking a risk when you have little to lose is hard enough, but taking a major risk when everything is there to lose is harder still. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Bill Schaefer and Mark Middleton here, and you're listening to Growing Boulder. I want to tell you about a guy named Phil Keen who had a dream of being an architect. He had a degree in architecture, but when he graduated, like a lot of us do, he got sidetracked and started a retail business that ended up being pretty successful. Yeah, Bill, he built that business for nearly two decades, and it ultimately became one of the most difficult traps of all to escape from. Because taking a risk when you've got nothing to lose is one thing, but turning your back on hard-earned success... To risk it all on something else isn't easy, but when Phil Keen turned 40, he realized it was now or never. Welcome to the New American Home, an empty nester's dream house showcasing the latest trends in home design. It was designed and built by Phil Keen, just the 29th person honored with this prestigious commission from the National Association of Home Builders. What do you hope happens when someone walks in this home for the first time? What's the feeling you want them to get? I want them to think of uh, architecture and art as sort of a blending. Keen not only blends architecture and art, he blends indoors and out. Floor-to-ceiling glass walls slide open and disappear at the push of a button, instantly turning the home inside out. Or is it outside in? With America's population aging, Keene says downsizing is a powerful trend and less is now more, even in luxury home building. It's uh, almost half the size of last year's new American home, so, uh, and it's the smallest probably in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Don't be deceived by the 50s and 60s feel of this home. It's a technological and ecological wonder, from paper-thin solar panels to an integrated iPort system. You can be anywhere in the world and run this house, check on it and see who's at the front door. Motorized screens with solar sensors triggered and powered by sunlight move up and down according to the light. Media screens drop down from the ceiling and pop up from the furniture. Built-in media centers manage Apple TV, streaming Pandora Music, and other web-based content throughout the house. You know, this house isn't just a smart home, it's brilliant. So, uh... <laughs> Tubs and showers operate from electronic touchpads featuring programmable light scenes and music. Toilets have motion-activated lids, which automatically project a light onto the floor. Step on the light, and the seat lifts. 
It's all hands-free if you want it to. But it has music, it has uh, heated seats, it has heated floors. There's a bidet? It has a bidet, it has um, uh, eco-flush so that you use less water. Do you have to train your guest on how to I, use it? I haven't learned how to use it yet. <laughs> a large technology nerve center is just one of several hidden rooms. Another is a full-size laundry room behind a closet door. We've tucked, oh we've tucked a laundry room off the master so the um, mess is where you make the, the laundry mess. Keen studied architecture in college, but decided to pursue a business career instead. After spending decades building a successful retail business, he risked it all to chase his dream of building homes. A series of events, turning 40, 9-11, um, sort of realizing that, you know, if I was ever going to do this dream of mine to be an architect, I should do it now. And so 10 years ago, I traded in the retail and um, and ventured out on a new journey. Well, it was probably one of the scariest decisions I'd, I'd ever made, you know, in, in the sense that everything was very comfortable. And uh, so to change, it was pretty, it was kind of, it was really scary. Um, looking back, it was the most exciting time, you know, sort of taking that leap and, and not knowing what was on the other side. The risk has paid off. Keen is a true architectural artist, and the new American home is his masterpiece. A floating stone staircase leads to a second-floor master suite, complete with a loft room, a private balcony, and a workout room with a yoga deck overlooking the pool area. And this is the first time I've noticed that your table downstairs has a waterfall feature. Oh, yeah. We couldn't find anybody to, to do it, so we, we created it. A really big trend is aging in place, and I see this has an elevator. Is that what this is about primarily? Yes, yeah. So this is a home that's a two-story home with the master being upstairs. So the idea behind this is that as you age, you may not have the ability to, to always go up and down the stairs. So this allows you to utilize your home much longer. Keen believes that walls should remain neutral, allowing art to make the ultimate personal expression. In his case, it's Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, and others. This is a Rauschenberg. Phil Keen has proven that it's never too late to reinvent yourself, and his greatest piece of architecture may be the new life he's designed for himself. I think I would probably go crazy if I didn't get to do this. Um, I just find it to be the piece that gets me out of bed every morning and, and has me want to work on a Saturday because I'm so excited about something. And he doesn't see that excitement ending anytime soon. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright designed the Guggenheim up and into his 90s, so um, you sort of think of somebody like that being, you know, doing a masterpiece at that late stage in their life, and you think, well, you know, so I think the best is still ahead of me. Passing on the inspiration, Frank Lloyd Wright inspiring Phil Keen, who hopes he can inspire you. And folks, did you hear what he said there at the end? I think the best is still ahead of me. That is an amazingly powerful thought, and it really is one that we all need to develop. Believing that the best is yet to come totally changes the way you view everything. And for Phil Keen, it was that very belief 10 years ago that gave him the strength and then the persistence to build this new life. What a great message, Mark, and an awesome story, too. And it makes you ask the question, what is it that you really want to do? What dreams did you grow up with that are unfulfilled? If, like Phil Keen, you believe the best is still ahead, it really can be. Because even if you never fully achieve the dream, the pursuit of something you love is reward in and of itself. It'll make every single day you live more exciting and more fulfilling. But if, like so many others, you think your best days are behind you, then they probably are. So... Are you ready to give up, or are you ready to start growing bolder? You know, there is no question that advertisers are finally beginning to respect, if not covet, the baby boomers' dollars. So why don't they feature real baby boomers in their actual ad campaigns? Boy, is that a good question. And, Mark, that's been bugging the heck out of author and Growing Boulder contributor Barbara Hannah Grufferman. And here's a quick take on how we look at aging in America. Hi, I'm Barbara Hannah Grufferman, author of The Best of Everything After 50, The Expert's Guide to Style, Sex, Health, Money, and More. There are advertisers who want to get their hands on the baby boomer dollars. They hire models who are half our age 
or are so airbrushed that they make 50 look like the new 40 or even the new 30 in a distasteful attempt to have us believe that the clock in fact can be turned back. Isn't it time that we changed how we look at and talk about aging in this country? Have we created a society of haves and have-nots based not so much on how much we have, but more on how much we're willing to spend just to make ourselves look younger? To me, growing bolder means loving the skin you're in, loving how you look and what you do. So tell me, what does growing bolder mean to you? Boy, great question, Barbara. To me, Bill, it's getting up each and every day and not being defined or constrained by others. Baby boomers now have the power, but if we don't wield it, we'll change nothing. So, folks, vote with your pocketbook. Mark, that's an excellent point. So don't patronize companies or products that have no respect for you or your money. And you can get more insight and commentary just like that from people like Barbara Hannah Grufferman, Rowdy Gaines, Pat Williams, and other GB contributors all you have to do to find it is go to growingboldertv.com. Coming up, have you heard of the American River 50-mile endurance run? It's all uphill, and it's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. Hello again, I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer and this is Growing Boulder. And Bill, I think it's safe to say that our next guest kind of likes to challenge herself uh, and she's a great model for what you can do with just a little bit of determination. Yeah, maybe what she can do, but yeah. I kind of wonder if I could ever do anything even close because at the age of 71, Judy Shipman from Rancho Cordova, California, recently did something amazing. She completed the American River 50-mile endurance race, one of the top ultra marathons in the world. Wow. At 71, Mark, let's find out how in the world she did this and maybe even more important, why she did it. <laughs> Here's Judy Shipman. Hi, Judy. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Now, what, what's, a nice, what's a nice girl like you doing in an event like ultra marathons? <laughs> well, what am I doing? I'm. It's a challenge. That I, I like the challenges, and I've been running these kind of races for a long time. You know, it's not just for those folks that don't understand some of this stuff. It, it's not just the fact that it's fifty miles. It's the kind of fifty miles that it is, because the American River Race has a reputation for being particularly brutal, especially at the end. Describe the course for us. Well, it starts on a bike trail down around Sacramento um, University, and you run the bicycle trail for about 26 miles, and it gradually goes up from that. And then you hit the trail at 26 miles, and it's a single-track horse trail, so you're actually stepping up over rocks, watching roots, and... It's up and down, up and down. You have to really watch your footing. And then at the end, oh, my gosh, you've got that three-mile climb straight to the top of a dam that was going to be built but wasn't on this road that we call the dam road. <laughs> wow. You know, the, 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 it sounds like they're trying to torture you. After running 47 miles, you've got to run or walk or stumble three miles uphill? <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> You you come up out of the canyon, and you're uh, kind of like, oh, my gosh. So you you take a couple steps, and you put your head down, <laughs> trying to breathe. Take a, it, I mean, it's straight up. It, it, it's, it's cruel. Judy, but you... It's, at the same thing, it's like, oh, the time you're done, I did it. It's just exciting. 
You know, Judy, you must establish an incredible bond with all of the other 71-year-olds in that endurance race. Um, I have, uh, but there's uh, there's maybe about four of us in our 70s that's still doing this kind of running. There's not that many of us left, but yes. There's still a few of us that's running these um, races. There just happened there was nobody in this this particular race this time my age. Yeah, you're right, Judy. In fact, you were six or seven years older than the next oldest competitor. Do you ever take that as a sign? Maybe you take up 18 holes of golf instead of running 50 miles with the last three straight up? (laughs) I I should think about that. Um, I really should. it puts me, actually, it's kind of nice when you don't have anybody else in there to compete with sometimes because I, I end up with first place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> folks, we are talking with uh, 71-year-old Judy Shipman, and we talk a lot about ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and we like to bring people like Judy to the microphones uh, as a role model, as an example to all of us of what we really can accomplish if we try. And if you're on the couch and you're thinking that, man, I can't even walk around the block, Judy ran 50 miles on a trail the last three miles uphill. How long did it take you to complete the race, Judy? And and what do you do during it? Uh, what are you thinking about? What are you eating? What are you drinking? Oh, it took me, it was 13 hours or um, 12 um Twelve Long hours, enough. nine minutes. You have to complete it in thirteen hours. Wow! And if you you have aid stations along the way, which you can actually get fat. <laughs> <laughs> they have cookies and candy, all the good stuff. No broccoli. <laughs> well, you got to have some yeah. sort some sort of carbo loading as you go. Yeah, potato chips. Because uh, you you have to continually drinking, so you have to remind yourself: drink water, drink. Um, what Gatorade, you know, electrolytes, because after a while, water doesn't, nothing tastes very good. So that's when you start bonking. So you have to force yourself to drink and eat along the way at these aid stations. Aid stations are pretty much five miles to six, maybe some seven miles uh, apart. And if you don't get to these aid stations, you're actually pulled. So you have a time limit. And I was just like within a couple of minutes of that time. I was on a bubble. You, you know, Judy, Mark, Mark brought up a really good point, and I'd like to get your, your take on this. You know, he was talking about all the people that are sitting home on the couch that they're probably never going to run a 50-mile endurance race. But you're a great example to all of us about what we can do if we take that first step to get off the couch. What do you tell people who look at you with respect, admiration, curiosity, about what you've been able to do and how being active has has changed your life. Oh my goodness. I was 200 pounds when I started this. Hmm. Just running. I get that was the motivation. The uh, a change of life. Uh I just chose that. There's other activities that you can do. And not to say there's no pain in it. There's there's pain in it all along the way. But you just choose to get off that couch and go on. I've had a bout with breast cancer. I had thyroid cancer, and I still went on. Plus, I'm widowed for 13 years now, 40 years of marriage. So you have to look forward and look forward to what life you have and, and um Enjoy, and it doesn't have to be the ultras. I chose the ultras uh, because I like the challenge. But it can be walking. Um, it can do anything just to get you out there and see nature. Well, Judy or Shipman, real world again. Judy, I think what you just said is as valuable as the 13 hours that you spent running the American River 50-mile endurance race. Very inspirational words from a 71-year-old woman who has beaten cancer twice, who was widowed, and who still continues to get out there and try to create a life of significance. Folks, are you listening? That's what Growing Boulder is all about.
Coming up, it's about to become one of the most explosive, most important discussions in history. End of life issues, the art of dying well, next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. And our next guest argues that how we die is among the biggest national crises that we're facing today. He first gained international recognition as an expert on end-of-life care with his book called Dying Well. Boy, it's a huge topic now, Mark, and it's only going to get bigger and bigger as the years roll by. The new book is called The Best Care Possible, and it tackles the crisis that surrounds serious illness and dying in America today and his quest to transform the way that we look at the end-of-life issues. Let's welcome Dr. Ira Bayok to the program. Hi, Doc. How are you? Hi, folks. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. Man, what a topic. You know, and, and it's no joke either that with the aging of America, this is becoming bigger and bigger by the day. It sure is. Uh, you know, no one gets out of this one alive, and yet we act as a culture as if we, we may live forever. Um, we've learned that, you know, more treatment is always better care. And while that's true through most of our lives and most of our illnesses, since we're not immortal, at some point in time, we inadvertently are making things harder than they need to be. And, and the reason for that in large part, doctor, is it not, is that because our society in many ways is is not controlled by, but, but it's it's medicine, it's medical, it's treatment of disease. You know, death is not looked at by the medical profession uh, as natural. I don't think it's looked at by any of us as natural, frankly. I, I mean, maybe the medical profession has taught that to society, but I think society has also pushed the medical profession to to focus ever more on disease rather than on the people with it. I, I really don't think you can just blame doctors, although I'm not letting doctors off the hook in this regard. You can look it up. Everybody uh, dies eventually. and <laughs> And so we need to sort of figure out. We need to grow up as a culture and catch up to the technological advances that have really given us an unprecedented ability to extend life. Um, You know, we need to be able to use medical care for its full value while also ensuring that people are cared for in ways that that are not only clinically comprehensive, but also, frankly, tender and loving and that their families are cared for during times of illness and caregiving and grief. We're not doing very well on any of those counts, frankly, by any measure. And and is there any reason at all to be optimistic? And good Lord, uh, you know, I I, I want to be as optimistic as the next guy, but you need only look at the political climate in America today. And you talk, Dr. Bayak, about a fundamental ethical uh, and and social problem in our culture right now. Is it possible to marshal the forces to change this for the better, or are we going to be locked in this battle no, I, I absolutely think it's possible. I, I don't know that we're going to succeed. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not that naive, but I do think it's possible. I wrote the best care possible be, because I want people to know what the best care can look like. You know, the, the best care is, is not the same for you or me or the person down the street, but we do know these days how to define what the best care is for an individual by going through what's called shared decision-making, understanding a person's values and preferences, and then applying those values and preferences, which may be informed by their religious background or their ethnicity or their upbringing, applying those values and preferences to the particular medical condition that they're in, and then looking at what available treatments exist and what the achievable health outcomes are. We have to, though, be willing to do that in, within a process 
that again acknowledges that while we can often cure diseases and stave off the ravages of disease, eventually we also have to plan for how this story ends, how people can be clean and comfortable, their dignity respected, even honored and celebrated during this last part of life. If that seems too, you know, woo-woo <laughs> or, or new agey, I'm sorry, but human beings um, uh, deserve to, be, to have their inherent dignity respected and deserve to be relatively comfortable despite the ravages of disease and allowed to leave this life in a gentle way, surrounded by those they love, and, and frankly, their loved ones also deserve to be supported during these incredibly poignant times of life. Incredibly poignant, incredibly difficult, but also normal times of life. We, as a medical profession, frankly, have been almost seduced by the scientific um, power of disease treatments. These days, America has a disease treatment system more than it has a health care system. And unfortunately, we have been reinforcing the public's desire to avoid any discussion of illness, dying, death, and grief. You know, if you wanted to encapsulate the America's sort of mindset related to serious illness and dying, it would be, I don't want to think about it. Hmm. You know, that exclamation really, really encapsulates it. But not thinking about it doesn't make us immortal. <laughs> it just leaves us less prepared to deal with it when serious illness and dying are happening. And it, frankly, stacks the, the deck against us so that when these difficult times are happening, they're more likely to happen in ways that we would not have chosen, that aren't consistent with our values. Well, it, it does seem, Doctor, that in some cases we, we have sort of made some progress because you hear the term... You know, I, I, up until five years ago, I don't think I ever heard about palliative care. Sure. And you hear that in connection with hospice all the sure. time. So w what exactly is palliative care? Well, palliative care in America grew from the hospice movement, which, you know, back in the 1970s started as a countercultural movement, uh, a response to people dying badly, often in hospitals, often in pain, too often alone. And hospice was started often by by uh, nurses in various communities and as a national movement. It was led by nurses initially. Some renegade doctors like myself <laughs> uh, joined the movement, as, as did chaplains and, and people from the community, to really um, uh, advance values and, and, frankly, higher standards of caring for people through the end of life. Palliative care grew out of that hospice movement to um, mature the, the science and the, and the protocols and the, the evidence base of uh, the discipline. And now palliative medicine is recognized as a full medical subspecialty. We have our own textbooks and our own training programs and our you know, um, standards and, and exams and all of the stuff that makes a specialty a, a true distinct um, area of expertise. Uh, our focus is on a team approach, an interdisciplinary team approach to people's comfort and quality of life, helping them kind of play the cards that they've been dealt, you know, um, working through not only the symptoms of, of illness, but also, as I referred to before, helping them um, make the best of these difficult circumstances that will befall us all through shared decision-making, ability to really define for each person and at each point in time what really is the best care possible now and going forward. And then coming back to it in, in an iterative uh, uh, process, you know, when, when a condition changes or several months have gone by, and again asking, you know, what's the best care now for you and your family? How can we make the best of this difficult situation? I'm, I'm at work today and seeing patients all day, and, you know, I never try to talk people out of um, treatments. I do try to educate them and reflect back on their personal values and preferences and then choose which treatments would advance their well-being really from their perspective. And sometimes I can point out, as I did earlier today, um, that um, the treatment being asked for is really one that is probably not in um, 
of the person's best interests. Dr. Bayak, thank you so much. We're going to have to cut it there. This is a conversation that we need to have uh, as a nation. We hope we can have you back to continue the conversation very, very soon. His book is called The Best Care Possible. He is Dr. Ira Bayak. Thanks, Doc. Coming up, the man who sold his life on eBay. Well, not his actual life, but everything he owned. The ultimate act of downsizing next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And do you ever wish... You could just put everything behind you, and I'm talking everything, and start all over with a totally clean slate. Well, that's pretty much what our next guest was hoping to do, but he might have gone a little too far when he put his entire life for sale on eBay. (laughs) Yeah, do you remember that? He made headlines all around the world, but the part you didn't hear about is that this was just the beginning of what would become an even more incredible adventure. Everything from tackling a list of 100 goals to achieve in 100 weeks to writing a book about the whole thing. His biography is called A Life Sold. Let's find out more from Ian Usher. Hey, Ian. Hi, guys. How are you? Hey, you sound like you're not exactly around the block. Where does one go after one sells his life? (laughs) Well, yeah, as you mentioned, um, that really was just the start of the adventure for me. I I spent two years traveling the world. Um, I I, I was asked uh, in interviews in the lead-up to the eBay auction, what will you do once you've sold your life? And and I really didn't have an answer, so I I started writing lists and... um, of going through all lists that I had. And eventually I came up with a list of 100 goals. And I thought, well, I need a timeline to try and achieve these. And, and 100 weeks seemed like the obvious answer. Before we get to those, where are you right now? Uh, I'm now actually living in Panama. I, I bought myself a little bit of property just off the coast of Panama. And I'm living in a beautiful little place called Bocas del Toro. And in Panama, you don't have to, like, climb a tree to get on the telephone or to get the satellite <laughs> signal out, do you? Are you... Uh, it, it can be a little bit tricky. Communications aren't, aren't quite as easy as sort of living in uh, in downtown. I, I, my, I have um, great cell phone service here because I can see the town on, on the main island. Um, and I'm also very lucky to be able to pick up the Internet, too. So I do have some mod cons here. Hey, Ian, back to the eBay thing for a minute. Was this the act of a depressed individual or was it? the scheming of a man who imagined the day he would write a book about it and be on radio shows all Ooh. over the country. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a little bit from column A and a bit from column B. <laughs> there was, a, there was a, I guess that's the honest answer. You know, there was the desire to move on from uh, a failed marriage. And I, I found myself living in a house that, that we planned to share, surrounded by all the furniture that, that we'd had in our previous home. And for me... It was it was time to sort of move along and 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 move on to the next phase of my life. Once once I realised that my marriage was over, um, it was it was time to move on. Um, I, I guess when I set up the auction, the idea of auctioning it all as one single item, I knew I had to go and look for publicity. And and um, you know, I thought, oh, I'll be lucky if I appear on the local radio show and maybe get a piece in the, the local newspaper. But I, I really didn't foresee where it was all leading, and there's a huge uh, worldwide interest in what I was doing and why I was doing it. Did, did you ever have a time, Ian, when you started thinking to yourself, hey, maybe I went a little too far with this? I, I kind of want my old life back? Um, very sort of briefly early on when, when I sort of saw the direction that the publicity was going. But no, it, that was just the briefest of moments. I've always been a believer um, very much in that Life is an adventure. We all only get one one turn at this, and I just want mine 
to be exciting and fun. And, and uh, once I sort of accepted that and I thought, well, it looks like this is going to be pretty exciting, then um, I sort of slipped into it and just enjoyed it for the ride that it became. Well, exciting and fun, maybe. Unusual, definitely. <laughs> Without going down the whole list, what exactly did you sell? And as you mentioned, <laughs> you sold it in one lot. Who bought it and what did they pay for it? Well, it, it was everything that I had. My my ultimate goal was to um, to walk out with one set of clothes, put a passport in one pocket, a wallet in the other, and head to the airport and see what was the next flight heading out of, of uh, this was Australia that I was living in at the time. Um, unfortunately, the uh, the eBay auction didn't end in complete success. I had a high bidder, um, which was around the value of the house. Uh, so that everything else included the car, the motorbike, the, the furniture and everything else was, oh, someone was getting them pretty much for free. But ultimately, the bidder didn't have the finances in place and couldn't get the bank finances resolved. So I, I chased up five five more bidders. I, I talked to the top six bidders, ultimately, and I couldn't get one person, couldn't find one person who was in a position to settle. So uh, things didn't quite end as I planned, but... Ultimately, I had to resort to a plan B. I put the house in the hands of a real estate agent. I'd already planned to go traveling. And um, ultimately, I achieved what I wanted to do, which was, was get rid of everything um, and move along, go somewhere else and do something else. So, so you did that, and you started to embark uh, on adventure and your new life. Uh, Ian, sometimes where we think we're going isn't as good as we think it will be. Are you okay with where you are, and is your new life what you hoped it would be? Um, I'm certainly okay with where I am. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying the, the ride and, and where life has taken me. It's, it's certainly been unexpected. I didn't expect to be here. I never thought I'm going to end up living on a little Caribbean island. Um, um, I'm certainly okay with that. Yeah, definitely. Wow. So here's a guy, folks, who, who literally walked away from his life because he wanted to try something new. Uh, and, and Ian, you know, we, we say sometimes on this show that, that if you leap, the universe will catch you. You know, don't be afraid. Take a chance. Have you found that? Have you lost the fear of, of the unknown, the uncertain now? Absolutely, yes. I, I, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I did find... Um, there was so many people sort of offered assistance and help and accommodation or, you know, a meal out with them or something on the way. Um, it, I found it very uplifting, really, just to see how good the world was and how people uh, would help and how, um, yeah, like you say, I guess when you let go and, you, you know, you sort of put yourself out there and say, look, this is what I'm trying to do. I have no idea how it's going to happen, but this is what I'm wanting to achieve. It's amazing how sometimes things just fall into place and, and uh, allow some amazing things to happen for you. So if we may, uh, to borrow some of your wisdom and some of your thoughts, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening has some aspects of their life they would love to change, something they would like to do different, something they would like to try or become. What would the guy who sold his life on eBay say to those people? How do we start? What should we do to experience a bit of what you have? I think I, I always say to people, just take the first step. That's the hardest thing to do. You know, I, I sort of sat um, w- when I thought about doing the, the eBay sale. Um, myself and a friend started putting a website together. And, and for a long time, I sort of hummed and hard, and I thought, really, do, you know, is this going to work? Am I going to do this? Do I want to do this? But once you actually take that first step, and, and I put the website online, and I told a friend who, who was going to write a press release, I said, you know, it's online, off you go. Once that step's taken, everything else just starts falling into place. And once you take the first step, the second one becomes easier to do. The third step reveals itself once you've sort of seen the first couple of steps. It just becomes easier to keep that momentum going once you start. But I think the hardest thing is making that decision and then actually taking action and, and making the first thing happen. And, folks, there you hear it from a guy who started over completely. So for anyone who ever wondered what happened to the guy who sold his life on eBay, now you know there's a great ending to the story. He he accomplished, he set 100 goals in a, and took, gave himself 100 weeks to do it. He got almost every one of them done. And he's got a book that explains everything in detail called A Life Sold. And you can find it at Ian Usher. Ian, thanks for the inspiration and thanks for the fascinating visit. 
Well, folks, that wraps up another show. Actually, we've still got the part of the show in which we have our call to action. But our call to action isn't to sell you anything. Our call to action is to sell you on yourself. That's it. If you believe in yourself, this Growing Boulder stuff gets pretty darn easy. Oh, I love that, Mark. And if you don't believe in yourself, folks, you ought to. All you have to do is decide that you do want more and then go get it one step at a time. And yes, occasionally you are going to take a step backward, but if you keep trying, keep believing, you will transform your life. Amen, Brother Bill, preaching from the pulpit. So don't be afraid to do your thing, folks. And remember, you've always got friends and encouragement right here at Growing Boulder. And not only right here on the Growing Boulder radio show, but also Growing Boulder TV and GrowingBoulder.com. And remember, find us and then like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so we can stay connected all the time. We'll look for you next time. Thanks. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Oh